The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8, 15, and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish up chapter 1 today, so 24, verse 24, chapter 1, going all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. We've been in a series this fall. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, this is a prison letter, so he's writing, he's in chains as he's writing this, in a prison in Rome. And a few of you have sent this to me over the last couple of weeks. This must be going around the internet, but it's a summary of the Pauline letters. Have you seen this? Uh, A way to summarize in a couple of words Paul's letters. And I think it actually does a pretty decent job. Uh, Maybe we would add one thing or two, but listen to this I received from a couple of you. Um, We could summarize Paul's letters, there's 13 of them this way, grace, I thank God for you, hold fast to the gospel, sounds pretty good so far, pretty accurate, doesn't it? For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid, (laughs) Timothy says hi, um, Pretty accurate. If, if we were to summarize all of Paul's letters, very similar themes. But for Colossians, maybe we would add this one. And all spiritual fullness is found in Jesus Christ. We would add that one for Colossians because we've seen it and we're going to continue to see it. Paul is hammering home that message to the Colossians. All spiritual fullness is found in Jesus He actually hammers on that theme again this morning in this passage that we're going to look at. I think you'll see what I mean as we read. This is God's Word starting in chapter 1, verse 24. Now, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, 
rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. Let's ask the Spirit to come uh, and take this word and apply it to our hearts this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we do ask that because I cannot do that. Um, I cannot take this word, put it in people's hearts, and apply it in such a way that changes our lives. But that's what we want. That's what we're asking for. I'm asking that we would encounter Jesus in such a way that our, we leave here different. We leave here challenged and changed and softened in heart so that we might experience repentance and grow in maturity. And so would you be pleased to do that this morning at our church and for all those that are listening? Keep us alert. Keep us engaged. It's no accident that we're here. You want to do something in us. And so do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by setting some of the context. I think it's important, particularly with these letters, as you can see just from reading, it's, there's a lot going on here, and uh, it's hard to understand what exactly Paul is talking about. And so I think the context helps us understand uh, these portions of the letter better. So let me give you a little bit of that. False teachers are influencing this church, uh, this Colossian church, and last week they've been attacking Paul's message. They've been attacking the gospel message, and, and last week we, see, we saw in chapter 1, 15 uh, through 23 that Paul defended that message, and we had this wonderful, amazing description of Jesus. Well, this week they're attacking not Paul's message so much but they're attacking him and particularly his ministry. And it makes sense if you think about it. Paul was the authority. He was an apostle. And the Colossians, this church was looking to Paul for direction and for help. And so the thinking from the false teachers is we got to undermine this guy. We got to undercut his authority. We've got to discredit his ministry. If we can do that, then they will stop listening to Paul and we will be able to gain some ground. We will be able to gain influence. And so in this passage this morning, Paul is defending his ministry in a sense. And in doing so, he's giving us a picture of gospel ministry. He's giving us a a picture of Christian ministry and the key aspects or elements of gospel ministry. And you hear that and maybe you think, "Uh, okay, I can check out. I can think about lunch or I can think about that walk that I'm going to take later this afternoon because I'm not in gospel ministry, so this is not really for me. Think again. The New Testament says if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you and you are in ministry. Every member a minister. Of course, God calls people to lead his church full-time and pastors and that sort of thing. But you, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're in the ministry. You're a minister of sorts. And so this passage is for everyone this morning. And so the topic is gospel ministry, and we're going to look at three things. The nature of ministry. Secondly, we're going to look at the goal of ministry. And lastly, the message. So the nature, the goal, and the message of ministry. Let's look at our first heading, the nature. Look at, we're going to... 
look at this passage, so look down with me. If you have your Bible open or your bulletin, chapter 1, verse 24 and 29, then chapter 2, verse 1. You note two descriptions of gospel ministry. They both start with an S. Struggle and suffering describe life in this world, and they describe ministry. Not comfort, struggle and suffering. And we're going to hone in on verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Remember, Paul's in prison, he's shackled, he is suffering, and he says, I rejoice for your sake. And I think we can connect to this in some way. Think about the people you love most in the world, whoever that might be. Uh, If you could suffer for them and make their life better, you would gladly do it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying about suffering for the sake of, uh, of the church and for Christians. He's saying, I love the church so much that there is nothing I wouldn't do for the church. And then he goes on and he says this phrase, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Let me be clear, what does that mean? Well, let's first talk about what it doesn't mean. It's not saying that Jesus' sufferings are somehow not enough or Jesus' sufferings are not sufficient. And Paul is saying, hey, Jesus didn't get it done, and so I've got to add my sufferings and supplement my sufferings to Jesus' sufferings in order to save his people. Now, that's not what it's saying there. That can't be true when you look at the rest of Scripture because Jesus in the cross, remember what he says? It is finished. Everything necessary to save you, all of his sufferings, that has been done. We also note that the word affliction uh, is never used to describe Jesus' personal suffering or his work on the cross. And so what is Paul talking about here? Paul is saying, and this is a concept that is, I think, hard to get our minds around, but let's try. Paul is saying here he's rejoicing in suffering because his suffering connects him to Jesus and his sufferings. It connects him and drives him into deeper union with Christ. His suffering connected him to Jesus in a deeper, richer, and fuller way. He goes on and he says he suffers for the sake of the church. And so there's a sense in which Paul says uh, suffering is for the good of the church. That's the way the gospel grows in the world. And we see that if you read the book of Acts, that's certainly true. But if you look throughout church history, when does the church tend to grow the most? Through suffering and persecution. Suffering and persecution, because suffering is one of the primary ways God puts himself on bright display in the world. It's through suffering that God is revealed and he communicates and imparts glory the way nothing else can. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Uh, He's famous. You know this quote. He says, in prosperity, God whispers, but in suffering and pain, what does God do? He shouts. He shouts in our suffering and pain, but there's actually more here. So suffering advances the gospel in the world, uh, and it edifies the church, but who's 
part of the church. We're part of the church. And so it's through suffering, personal suffering of Christians, that they grow and that God's glory is displayed in them and in us. And of course, that's true, obviously, of imprisonment and persecution like Paul here. Uh, But the Bible broadens suffering. It's not just that. James chapter 1 verse 2 talks about suffering of various kinds. And so suffering includes financial hardship, loss of job, uh, losing someone that you love. It includes financial things and relational uh, conflict and all sorts of things that come from walking and living life in a broken, fallen world. And God is saying, I'm used those things, your pain and your suffering, to change you and to grow you and so that you change. And when you change, that flows out into other people and it edifies the church and I am proclaimed and I am magnified and put on bright display to the world. And suffering, you see, we know this, it has the power to change you the way nothing else can. It's why one of the images that the Bible uses for suffering is the fiery furnace. Because what does a fiery furnace do? When when used properly, it shapes you, it refines you, it purifies you, it beautifies you. That's how the Bible wants us to view our suffering. And so then the question is, how does that happen? What How does suffering change us and purify us? How does God use those things to ultimately build up his church? Well, a couple of ways. Suffering actually brings out the worst in you. It brings out your weaknesses and your sin. It brings them to the surface and forces you to deal with your character flaws in a way that nothing else can. You can hide all of those things in times of prosperity. That's what Lewis is getting at. You can hide those things, but it's in your suffering that all sorts of things start to come out. Your faith shows itself for what it really is. Uh, It brings out perhaps selfishness or lack of love for other people or insensitivity or maybe bitterness or worry. Your character flaws become more evident. And God's saying when those things become more evident in suffering, that's where I'm at work. I want you to take those things and experience repentance and faith so that you might become more like me. We also see that suffering humbles us. How does it humble us? Well, it reminds us of what is always true, and that is that we're not in control and we never have been. It deepens your relationship with God. When people suffer, uh, well, and, and you probably have heard this. I hear it all the time. Uh, as a pastor, but no one has ever, rarely, if ever, has anyone said they feel closest to God. You know this is true in your own life in times of prosperity. But nine times out of ten, when someone's suffering or going through hardship, you know what they say? I've grown more than any other time in my life, and I felt closest to God in the midst of pain and hardship and suffering. And so God uses it to drive you deeper into a relationship with him. He also uses it to help you see the good things in your life are not as good as you think they are. And so one thing God also does in suffering is he reveals your idols, the things that you're looking to that have become too important to you. 
And it could be a host of things, job, family, um, your health, whatever it is. We start turning those things into gods and saviors, and then suffering comes into our lives, and it starts to burn those things away so that we can see them clearly for what they really are, and we turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're better. You're all I've got. And like Paul, we can rejoice because we know that our suffering is not meaningless, that it's actually changing us and it's putting Jesus and his church on bright display for the world to see. And when the world notices the church the most is in suffering. It's a chance to reveal Jesus to the world. I had a friend going along these lines in Oxford, Mississippi. He went to the church that we went to when we lived there. Um, and this guy, his story, it's interesting. He, he was a college student at Ole Miss, and he was diagnosed as a student with Hodgkin's disease. And you need to know this guy was like life of the party. He was a people magnet. People loved to be around him, fun personality. He was a Christian. Everybody knew he was a Christian. He was popular. Uh, and then he gets Hoskins, and he starts undergoing chemotherapy, and his life starts to unravel. Starts to lose a ton of weight. He's almost unrecognizable. Loses his hair. Girlfriend breaks up with him. Uh, all of his friends that were hanging out with him when he was popular and cool start to disappear. His life is, cr is crummy, and he feels horrible. He's in the hospital uh, one particular night. As his, he tells his story, and he's exhausted with fatigue, nauseated. He gets up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and collapses in his hospital gown right on the hospital floor. And he said, in that moment, in my helplessness, it finally hit me. This is what grace is. Because he said up until this moment, he thought of himself as this great Christian guy that was doing all of these great Christian things, and he loved people so well. And now in this moment, helpless on the floor, fatigued, he said, I'm not leading any Bible studies. I barely feel like praying because I feel so miserable. I have done nothing for God, and yet he is here and he loves me and is committed to me, and he forgives me. And he said, that's grace. I'm in Jesus, not for what I do for Jesus, but I am in Jesus because of what he has done for me. And he said, I never understood it until that moment. And he says, if you ask him his story, he says this often, I love Hotskins because through it, God taught me things that I would never have learned any other way. We don't see our suffering that way. I don't. I see suffering as a nuisance. I see suffering, and I would guess that you do too, uh, as something that we need to avoid at all costs, that it, it's a roadblock, it's an obstacle. And we've been taught in our culture and where we live in our demographic uh, that the goal in life from a very young age is personal peace, affluence, and happiness. And get Jesus along the way. He becomes your boy, bus boy, and he'll help you get there. 
That's not the normal Christian life as it's described in the Bible. Did you know the normal Christian life in Christian ministry is not comfort, but it's described most often as suffering? And so often we're surprised when it comes into our lives thinking, what is happening to me? This is not the way it's supposed to be. That's what happens when personal peace and affluence becomes the goal. That's why Peter in 1 Peter 4, 12 says, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Why is he saying that? Because we're often surprised. He said, don't be surprised as if something strange was happening to you. Paul says, you want to follow Jesus? You're united to Jesus by faith, and that means that your life will look like Jesus's life. What was his life? Suffering, pain, rejection, hardship. That's what it means by filling up what is lacking. And Paul's able to rejoice because his Savior, Jesus, knows what it's like to suffer and identifies with him in his sufferings. Isaiah 53, 23, he was despised and rejected. A man of what? Sorrows. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Friends, he knows your suffering. He's with you in it. And there is fellowship and connection with Jesus when you experience suffering. Suffering and struggle is the nature of Christian ministry, gospel ministry. Second point. The goal. Look at verse 28. In him we proclaim warning and everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is the goal of uh, gospel ministry here? Maturity in Christ. Now note, who is that maturity for? He repeats a word, and anytime we see a a word repeated three times in one verse, we should automatically pay attention. Everyone He says three times in one verse. And why should we pause there? Well, because our tendency might be to think Christian maturity, it's for the pastors and the officers and Christian leaders. No, if you're a Christian, God's goal for you is that you would be spiritually mature, that you would grow into maturity. And so then the question is, how do we do that? How do we grow in spiritual maturity. Well, we have some hints actually right here in the passage. First, notice him, Jesus, we proclaim. And so you want to grow in spiritual maturity? That's God's will for you and desire for you. You know how you do it? One way you do it is you put yourself under the proclamation of Jesus over and over and over again. And Paul's mentioned this actually last week. We talked about similar things. He comes back to it again this week. Why does Paul keep coming back to this theme of getting ourselves in front of Jesus? Well, first of all, and I won't go into it because we talked about it last week, but it's really easy for us to proclaim something else, believe it or not, from this pulpit other than Jesus. That's one reason, but it's also, think spiritual maturity, it's also really easy for us to put ourselves under something other than Jesus. It's really easy, think about it, to put ourselves under um, 
inspirational and entertaining messages or spiritual pep talks. It's very easy to put ourselves under health, wealth, and prosperity messages. Or how about this? It's very easy to put ourselves under relevant ethical teaching on hot-button topics of the day. And are those things bad? Is that bad? No, we need to learn and grow, of course. But you can do all of those things and hear all of those things and put ourselves under all of those things and Jesus never be mentioned. And Paul says, you want to grow? You got to get under Jesus. You got to get under the proclamation of Jesus over and over again. Dane Ortland, he's an author and pastor. Listen to what he says. It's possible that one of the reasons that you're seeing modest growth in your life, modest maturity, and one of the reasons you are seeing ongoing sin in your life is that the Jesus you're following is a junior varsity Jesus. (laughs) An unwittingly reduced Jesus. An unsurprising and predictable Jesus. Christian maturity, goes on to say, comes out of an accurate and ever-deepening vision of Christ to whom we have been united. An ever-deepening vision. We never reach the bottom. We never get to a point where we say, Jesus, I got you. Let's move on next topic. There is so much to Jesus that we never reach the bottom. It's an ever-deepening vision of who he is. We continue to learn more about him, and maturity means that we sit under Jesus and we get Jesus worked out into every crack and crevice of our lives. Jesus gets worked out as we spend time with him and get to know him better. Jesus works his way into our sexuality. And the way we think about that, the way we think about our money, the way we think about our marriage, the way we think about dating, the way we think about our time, the way we think about our schoolwork, if you're a student, we could go on and on. All our singleness, all of life, Jesus gets worked out into. Verse 28, again, look, there's something else. So him we proclaim, we sit under the proclamation of Jesus. That's part of spiritual maturity and getting there. But also, look there, it involves warning. It involves warning. I think this is really interesting. The NIV, the New International Version, says the word admonishing. And so growing to spiritual maturity means that you have people in your life who will warn and admonish you. Why do we need that? Again, I'm asking a lot of why questions of Scripture. But why do we need that? Well, because we've got blind spots. No one is objective about themselves. You know this. No one is objective about themselves. We all have blind spots, and we need other people to speak in and to warn and admonish us. And this kind of interaction... Can, it's not just for random people to walk up to you. No, where does this kind of interaction take place? In friendship, in relationships with other people. And it is to be done, of course, with love, and it's to be done with gentleness. But if you want to be a spiritually mature person, you must have relationships and be in relationships where other people warn you. Proverbs, it's, they're all over the Proverbs. 27.6, here's one. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have a friend? 
that will look at you in humility and love and gentleness and say things like, do you see how often you beat yourself up? Do you see how cruel you are to yourself? You're way harder on yourself than anyone else in your life, and you think it's humility, but it's actually really unhealthy. Or do you have people in your life that can say, hey, do you realize how sarcastic you are? You think it's funny, but it actually is very hurtful to the other people around you. Do you have people in your life who can look at you and say, hey, you know, you have no idea how to enter into pain or enter into suffering because anytime somebody goes through something hard, you try to back away from it by making a joke and making light of it and laughing. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends that can look at you and say, hey, I love you, but your life seems out of whack, like something is out of balance. It seems like these things are too important to you. Exercise or family or your work or money or material things or whatever it might be, they seem to be too important to you. They seem to have hold of your heart. Did you, did you know it looks like fear is the thing that drives you the most in life? Or did you know your heart is hard and it doesn't seem soft towards Jesus? And we could go on and on. But do you have people in your life that can say those kinds of things? And are you those kinds of people for someone else? You see, one of the dangers as we grow as a church is that people can start coming in here on Sunday morning and slipping out the back or the side doors and no one knows them. And the danger of that is no one really knows you. You're not in relationships where these kinds of things can happen and take place. And to be spiritually mature, and if we're going to grow in maturity as a church, we got to fight against that with everything we've got. We've got to fight for relationships and get in small groups and pursue other people so that we can grow in spiritual maturity. Because one of the ways that we grow is through warning and admonishment. Lastly, thirdly, the message of ministry. Look at verse 25. So has this ministry of stewardship, Paul says, that's given to him to do what? Well, to make, to preach the Bible, to preach Christ and him crucified, to wake, make the word fully known. He talks about that in general terms. That's the message of gospel ministry is teaching and preaching Christ and the scriptures. But he gets more specific and he gets more specific by talking about being stu a steward over a mystery. And we see that word, again, repetition, three times. And so if it's in there three times, we need to talk about it. What does Paul mean by mystery? Look at verse 26, 27, chapter 2, verse 2. God made mystery known, which was hidden in the past, ages and generations, but it's now revealed. And so to understand this, there were these false teachers, I've mentioned them, and part of their message was uh, that there was a mystery and a secret code, and it was only for the select few, but if you really wanted to be spiritual and be full spiritually, then you needed this secret knowledge. 
that there was a secret key that you needed to unlock that. If you wanted to grow, know God fully and grow into your full potential, you needed Jesus plus something else. That's what they were saying. And notice what Paul does, hits it head on. Paul uses their word, mystery, against them. And he critiques it, and he redirects that word towards Jesus and the gospel. And he says, wait a minute, Uh, there's no mystery. The mystery is not a secret or some knowledge that you have to obtain for a special few that certain people can figure out. No, this mystery, the mystery I am talking about is for everyone. And what is that mystery? Verse chapter 2, verse 2, it's Christ. But even more specifically than that, look at verse 27. The mystery is what? Christ in you. That is the heartbeat of the gospel message that Paul preaches. And we see it everywhere. You can, Paul is saying here is that you don't just get, and I love this, you, don't, you do get these things, but you don't just get forgiveness in the gospel. You don't just get a perfect record and adopted into his family and reconciliation and peace, but you actually get Jesus himself. Through faith in Jesus, you're united to him so that Christ is in you. Think of this is amazing stuff, hard to grasp. But through faith in Christ, Christ is now in you and you are in him. That's the glorious mystery that is not hidden, but has been revealed. And it's something that Paul writes about everywhere in his letters. Over 150 times, he uses the phrase, 13 letters, over 150 times, he uses in Christ. It's his favorite way of referring to a Christian. And it makes sense because this idea of union with Christ is really the controlling center in the New Testament of what it means for you to be a Christian. In Christ gets at the fundamental thing that happens to you when you give your life to Christ. It's the thing that everything else flows out of. It's now that truth It's now the defining truth of your identity and who you are. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ and your story and your life is now hidden in his story and his life. And there's lots of implications and we're going to keep working that out when we go through this letter to the Colossians. But that's a huge deal. Look at chapter 2. He reiterates it. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. We're almost done. But notice he says, you get some of the riches. You get partial full assurance. No, you get all the riches. You get full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all things, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is the gospel message and the Paul message that Paul preached and our message for gospel ministry is Jesus is all you need. He is sufficient. And that is the thing that Paul pounds home over and over and over again. Why does he keep emphasizing this and why will he continue to emphasize it? Well, because think about it. Uh, there's, all way, there's all sorts of ways Uh, that we can communicate the gospel message. 
And it's very subtle, but we can do, and we do this. You need to believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. That's great. But if you really want to experience spiritual fullness, if you really want to know God, then you need to do fill in the blank. You need to, it's Jesus plus something else. You need to have a specific practice of spiritual discipline. Or you need Jesus, but you also need this emotional experience, a second blessing, or an additional gift. Or how about this one? If you really want to have a full life in Christ, then you need to get married and have children. Again, very subtle. What's the problem with that? Well, of course, Jesus wasn't married. But the writer of this letter, the Apostle Paul, who's talking about fullness of God in Christ Jesus, was not married. And when we make things qualifications for receiving a full life in Christ and the fullness of God in Christ Jesus, friends, there's no other way to say it. When we do that, we've moved away from the gospel. We've made the gospel something else. The gospel message is that the fullness of God is found in Jesus Christ alone, period. If you're a Christian this morning, Christ is in you and you are in him. Everything, think about these amazing truths. Everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. There's no secret code. There's no room that you need to get into to unlock more of who God is. Everything that God is is found in Jesus Christ. You have all the treasures of God in Jesus. And that is really good news. And so I want to invite you to this Jesus this morning. Come, believe in him, whether it's for the thousandth time or the first time. Come, rest in Jesus You have everything you need. He is the fullness of God revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel and that just these amazing words, all of the treasures of God are found in him and found in Christ. Forgive us for the subtle ways that we add to that message. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help give us an accurate picture of life in this world and life in ministry and life with you. Help us to see ourselves uh, or to put ourselves under Jesus in that proclamation. And may we also, would you help us develop friendships and relationships where we can be warned, where we can grow in spiritual maturity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.